there's no point spending money if you don't know where it's going and what it's doing because it's just going to end up as soon as something changes over there, they're just going to have to pour more money after it and they'll get disenchanted and say, I've tried everything, but they've really tried one thing really poorly. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. With thanks to our partner Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking and strategies to elevate your results. To get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast, visit joineliteagent.com. And for more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier on your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey everyone, it's Sam from Elite Agent and today on the Elevate podcast, we're joined by award-winning founder, thought leader, advisor and real estate entrepreneur all the way from Newcastle, it's Mark Kentwell. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Samantha. I say all the way from Newcastle because I'm from the Central Coast, so, you know, I think we almost grew up sort of around the same area. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Over the last probably five years, Newcastle's become a regional city, so it's sort of like bigger than the Gold Coast, although Gold Coast is more known to many people overseas and Sydney's kind of our capital and that's what it's known for, but it's a lot going on here and it's allowed me to really spread my wings across Australia, but it's a great base to call home. It's just that beachside lifestyle is excellent. Who's got the better beaches, the Gold Coast or Newcastle? I think the Gold Coast beaches are probably easier for the majority of people to deal with. Like they're sort of long and drawn out. You can really see where the better conditions are for someone who's not like a pro surf or a really heavy duty swimmer. But Newcastle's got very different vibes with each beach, which allows you to choose your tribe a lot more and the setting that you want, which I love. That was a very good, well thought out answer. (laughs) 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 So the last time you and I saw each other, which you reminded me of, was we were both wearing ridiculous wigs at an REA function. You know, like I think I've almost recovered. I have found the photo again. Yeah, I don't know whether it's that one on social or not. But how have you been since then? You know, that was like three years ago. Well, yeah, that was the T20 Thought Leader Forum. So I think 20 thought leaders from across Australasia. And I love those kind of events because you're spending time with people that are at an elite level, hence the podcast, I suppose, but also the kind of problems that are being solved, they're genuinely asking the industry, look, these are the things we're hearing. You're probably hearing them too. How would you tackle it? And it's a proper engagement. I've found that with those kind of bodies, whether it's a big corporate like REA or it's sort of a tech platform taking off that's serving the needs of the industry or it's something where leaders are coming together. There's similar problems happening in each agency, but by workshopping them, you get that mastermind effect and things gap ahead a lot quicker. And there is a bit of fun that goes on there too, but they really get their pound of flesh out of you. They really do want you to participate and be there early in the morning. I like being really actively involved in those kind of discussions. Yeah, absolutely. So you're the founder of PRD Newcastle, I think Lake Macquarie, Central Coast, which you've built from the ground up into, you know, very successful eight-figure businesses. You've spoken at ARIC. You've won every award I think that there is to win in this industry. And that's saying something because there's a lot of awards in this industry. How did you end up in real estate in the first place? Did you choose real estate or did real estate choose you? Well, I think the real estate chose me realistically. I had a partner at the time that was working, who I'm still friends with. We're living together and she was on the front desk of a prominent agency at the time in Newcastle. And she wanted to make her way to becoming an agent and to do that she wanted to go and do the course, which was held mostly by TAFE at the time. That was like 04. And I went along with her because I was in the engineering trades in the mines, electrical and mechanical and a bunch of other stuff with that. So I went along with her just to keep a company. I was always doing another course, a diploma in mechanical engineering, hydraulics, electronics, whatever. And in this case, I went along and didn't really know what to expect. But within a very short time, the teacher was speaking to me like I worked at an agency and I had been involved quite actively from being a teenager with my parents, buying and selling homes and watching them renovate. But they were more doing it not to build a wealth portfolio, more just to support our lifestyle, pay school fees and deal with the 17 to 19% interest rates at the time during the recession we had to have in the 90s when I was going through school. 
So I suppose I was familiar with it, but I really love consumerism business and sort of putting models together to serve the needs of a greater whole. So getting into real estate was a really natural progression for me. But instead of going and working somewhere, I started an agency from scratch. I sort of sold up an investment property and a couple of other little assets and my parents, you know, got some money out of their home and we went 50-50 in a business. So I hadn't actually sold a residential house before. I'd done a development and I'd been involved in commercial stuff. But that was a sort of baptism of fire, let me tell you that. Yeah, your mum's pretty famous in the industry too, Shula, isn't she? Yeah, she's got a corporate background and she worked way up from scratch at a government employment agency, then into the private sector, not-for-profit sector, and then ended up in a international firm. She was CEO of the Australia arm called A4E Australia and went from north to 450 employees in a period of time. Very sort of hands-on, human-focused leadership culture. And coming from that government and corporate background, I think it was really helpful because real estate, I observed very early, even though there are guidelines and compliance, they were nowhere near the standard that I expected them to be. I was in the mining industry and like you couldn't walk 100 metres without filling out five bits of paper. So to go into real estate and realise that, you know, at the time, palm cards were still being used for some agencies, spreadsheets for databases, and the way that things were done was fairly loose. So that was really helpful as our org chart started growing. And so she was on the outside of the business and just sort of providing consultancy and input, helping us with the strategic decisions. And it was about 2011, I bought my father out. They moved down to Geelong. And when they came back a few years later, due to some family requirements, when they came back, I got Shula in, that's my mother's name, to do like a bit of an audit. And she said, look, you're doing great on agent growth. You're clearly attracting good people. Your sharing with training is great. Obviously, my rise had been very strong and sort of that was a thing that was helping. But in the back end of the business, like the finance, the measurement, the sort of HR structure, the rhythms that went with that, they needed a lot of attention. So she gave it a real, well, she went from being that sort of auditor to becoming our CEO during some fairly heavy growth years and a lot of changes that went on too, like in the industry and in our own business. And without those lessons that I was learning, some of them very challenging to deal with, I don't think I would have built as much of a robust business as I have now that can run independently of me and allow me to get into the more nationwide ventures I'm involved in with prop tech and advisory and helping other businesses perform actually doing that work for them. Well, it's amazing. And, you know, it's amazing to have such a great resource in the family. I remember meeting Shula at an REI event and just being in absolute awe of her. So how wonderful to have her as your mum. Yeah, it was great. And like, you know, it was challenging working. Like my father was a very introverted person working in and he's still alive. He's just not in the business anymore. They both moved to Tasmania. And that was part of their game plan all along. Shuler ended up the head of REI Education for New South Wales. And she really thrives on that stuff, sort of working at that level. And for me, I have a very entrepreneurial sort of educated risk, willing to bet on myself and the company and our systems. And I suppose that came with its level of constant debate. But I'm also grateful for that because if you don't have someone debating with you and everyone's just giving you yeses all the time, that's where a lot of people just crash and burn. And, you know, in a number of the businesses that I've started since, which is quite a few, I'm involved in over 20 companies and quite a few of them are fully owned. I had some traits that I had when I was at that sort of age bracket, but they sort of don't have any, I call it bumper bowling. They don't have any sort of margins with people saying, hey, excuse me there, mate, you can't do that. Or, you know, maybe you need to watch that or whatever it might be, especially in Australia's tall poppy culture. So being able to bring some of that perspective in, but without putting the handbrake on, I've got my parents to thank for that to a large extent, even if I was sort of out the front doing the revenue, that's an important component of a business. Yeah. Now, speaking of being out the front, I remember the first time I met you was in 2015, I think it was, you wrote an incredible piece for us about gaining acceptance of auctions in any marketplace. And in preparation for today, I went back and searched for it on our website. It's still there. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, this is an incredible piece. And so then I thought, okay, I don't have time to read all of it. I'll ask ChatGPT to summarize it for me. <laughs> and it came back with an error saying it's too long. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I think many words. Yeah. And I thought, 
well, I'm going to have to go back and do this old school and have a look at it again. And we will leave a link to it in the show notes just in case anyone wants to go back and have a look at it. But, you know, like apart from the proliferation of online auctions now, I don't think actually that much has changed and what an incredible piece of work. Yeah, thank you. So I started on that in my third or fourth year in real estate. So coming in fresh, I had eyes as a fault finder. So I was always passionate about business and sort of entrepreneurial ventures, consumerism, but I took the path of the sort of engineering trades and that side of it when I left school because it was just a smoother path for me and there was more job prospects and to get ahead. But one of my main roles when I left the mining industry was as a fault finder. So I used the sort of engineering side of my brain to work in the trades and look for things that were clearly going to break. And when they break in the mining industry, you can be $150,000 an hour and it can take days and weeks to fix things. I came into real estate and I started seeing problems from day one. The first observation I made, and luckily I did get some great training early on. I had a guy called Charles Bainey. He's an incredible success coach, very good at auctions. Another guy called Paul Cavanaugh was doing a lot of auctions for a number of different groups at the time, and he's a very old-school auctioneer in his style. But I got that induction to auctions early, and then I went around Australia having a look at the top agents. Now, it wasn't as easy to get hold of that back then. You didn't have rankings like you do and like some of the major portals and other publications do. So to get access to that information, you really had to dig and ring around and research. And I found what I thought was the top 20. It might have been 20 of the top 30, but it was pretty well researched. And of those top 20, every agent in that top 20 had auction as their primary method of sale or in some cases their only method of sale. There was agents at the time that just wouldn't take another agreement out with them. And I couldn't understand why in Newcastle, which took me a while to get the actual data, but it wasn't hard to see the obvious evidence, there was less than 1% transactions in Newcastle and Lake Macquarie. 1% of auctions. And, you know, in Australia, it's still only like 13 to 15% most years. So it's been focused on metro areas. Melbourne's sort of the auction capital of the world. Sydney's followed very quickly after, and it's become quite common in sort of Brisbane and Gold Coast. But I was finding it was mostly agents in our area selling deceased estates or people that had to sell or mortgagee sales or that beachfront block of land or the knockdown that was a clear auction property where they thought they were going to have 10 bidders and why put a price on it. So I wanted to find out the problem, like where the fault finding was. And so I went to the consumer and I interviewed people right throughout New South Wales. I ended up doing it in Queensland and all other states. I won't go right into it. But essentially, the problems were the problems that the buyers had. It wasn't the vendors, but the agents had taken on the vendors' resistance who had taken it on from buyers. And the agents were fearful of being humiliated from a failed auction which realistically they were failing at the auctions. It's not the same as having buyers pull out the last minute and therefore it didn't go to plan. They just weren't able to get buyers to to engage in the process and come along and bid and everyone had sort of gone against it, solicitors, brokers, all that sort of stuff. And I boiled it down to the buyers had to go through an incredible amount of expense. They had to go through an incredible amount of risk and there was so much misnomer around the pricing, what it was going to go for and stuff like that. And people were genuinely starting to miss out on properties because they were pursuing an auction property and it was hundreds over, thousands over what they thought, or they'd spend two or three grand to go and bid an auction. And if they weren't in the running, you do that two or three times, you've got a serious problem with what the consumers think about the method. And that makes its way to the Office of Fair Trading or Consumer Affairs or whatever goes on in your state. And before I knew it, you were hearing really negative stuff. So I wanted to find some solutions to that instead of just not even talking about auction because the owners didn't want to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's certainly, I mean, I think it's such a, an amazing piece of work and I think you're right. I think agents do get a little bit scared of the auction process because, you know, we did a bit of a special on it back in 2016 with mm. a whole bunch of auctioneers and actually looked at what the temperature was for auctions. And I think still there are some people will say my market's different, but I think you in that piece really made auctions approachable for literally everyone. Well, it gave them a model to differentiate it from the typical misnomer of auctions because even if the agents were really great at their craft, they had so much explaining to do to a client that they were really risking the listing and it was only those with really great dialogue, rapport building or heavily referred in that were really able to overcome that. So they sort of became the exception, not the rule, and it's hard to vote against the masses. You can do it. You can zig when others zag. 
but you want to have your skills at level 99. Whereas this model, it's such a clear differentiator and, and basically it's blending all the best of the different methods. It's still a legislated auction. And, you know, that book that I wrote, I don't know, it's probably still available through Lee Woodward. And I think there's still some stuff online you can download for free. But the good thing is, as the legislation was looking like changing in 2016, which it eventually did off the back of a hot city market and Melbourne market, they actually brought out guidelines that were very similar to what I'd proposed. And I had a white paper submitted through the REI at the time to our premier at the time. And I believe that that got through to where it needed to because New South Wales was running at big risk of ending up like South Australia where you have to publish the reserve or Queensland where you don't talk price at all, but then the consumers again miss out. Now, that's not anything against Queensland and the reasons they've come up with it, but if people are searching for property, particularly now there's so much intrastate migration and interstate migration happening, they don't know the market. It's not the case that they will know the market just by looking at a few properties online. So yeah, that's now something that's put down beside that, but I haven't stopped with that. I've always been looking for other things to do to help consumers because that helps agents. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move into 2023. It's been an interesting couple of years. What are you seeing in the future for agents right now? It's a dramatically changing world. There's no doubt about that. And I think that leaders in particular are playing a more important role than they did in the markets that were just kind of running away and things were selling. It was around about that 2015-16 time that you would have noticed a lot of the portals, a lot of the trainers started really promoting to agents a lot more because, you know, at the time there's say 54,000 agents in Australia, give or take, and maybe 10,000 officers. And of those 10,000 officers, some of them were quite small regional areas or, you know, like husband-wife teams or whatever the variation might be. So they were really pitching their services to two to 3,000 agencies that were already sort of picking their trainers and their coaches. By going to the individual agents, the agents could consume content, get it at a certain price point, and there's been some great examples of that, and the list would be quite long, but there's been some real standouts. And when the agents started consuming their own content and branding themselves through event paid marketing, social campaigns, and all the other things that go on, the principal was sort of like, what do I do here? <laughs> yeah. Do I just put out bushfires all the time? Do I sort of just say yes every time you're after something? And a lot of agents now, particularly in 2023, are looking at varied models. So the principals right now have to look at, do we have a pathway from the moment someone starts in real estate to owning their own office or a share of an office? Do we have a light model that they can run on where they're not consuming as much human support from the business and as much overhead so that we can scale our business and retain top talent? Do we have a process for offboarding people that don't match and are we okay with that? Do we have the right agreements in place? And from an agent's point of view, it's sort of the responsibility more than ever now to track their own numbers and gain support from their team in IP sharing. I think this is the market across Australia right now. We're being in a team with lots of other team members, not external businesses that sort of think the same way, but actual ones you can bounce stuff off about a client opportunity or winning a listing, getting a deal over the line. This is where that collective IP makes a huge difference. So that there's a number of pillars that a, a principal really needs to look at right now. And the agents more than ever, in times of uncertainty, people often fly to quality or stay where they feel a solid foundation. And it's about looking around you and saying, what do I already have here that I can leverage? So every appraisal they're going into, talking to other people in the team, talking to their principal, researching the database, who else has dealt with this client? Go and talk to that agent, ring around town, talk to the solicitors. And that's where you can really leverage the team around you at the moment because it's needed right now. I remember exactly what you're talking about because we did go through this period of, I think Tom Panos started with, it's not what you know, who you know, but who knows you. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, Facebook and Instagram and everything and agents want to start doing their own videos and doing their own social media. And then that ended up with a whole bunch of problems and principals just didn't know what to do with it because they were promoting a brand. Mm-hmm. You know, is there any resolution to that on the horizon? Well, it's definitely still in process. And I think people are going to start choosing a stream that they want to swim in. So look, Tom's one of the guys I was going to mention before that's just done incredible things in the industry and he's pivoted as well. He got on board with socials very early. He leveraged the opportunities through News Corp. He was very open about that. He provided great value to help agents understand how to get ahead, how to grow profile without going broke. 
And in some ways, he helped principals a lot during that time. And he would come into offices and show the groups of them and then online and Eric and his real estate gyms, just incredible value. So to do all that stuff now and with agents being able to get ahead so much themselves, yes, the principal does have a lot that they need to catch up to speed on. And whether they've had a great time in the last 20 years or whether they found it very challenging, particularly the last 10 as agents have kind of risen, they've grown their own teams, they've sometimes employed their own people, they're doing their own marketing, remaining relevant is a constant case of the principals needing to know what works, doing trial and error, and really looking into business in a much more sort of measured way. So if you're doing field tests on a constant basis with different agents and explaining why and explaining to the team why, trying out products, doing trial runs of that, and talking to other principals, and this is where collaboration across the industry and something I'm encouraging a lot is becoming more important. So there is an opportunity to stay relevant to answer your question about, you know, which ways are going or are things starting to change. There are some things that we are starting to follow, like the American model, where in America you've got massive institutional brands that are across multiple states of America and they have, look, Compass, for example, prime example. So a brand that's heavily tech-focused, Their whole thing is set up for optimizing consumer engagement from the buyer point of view, which over there a buyer is something you would pay for a lead of, as you might know, buyers agents can represent up to 90% of transactions in many markets. In Australia, it's quite new now, and that's one of the things that's changing in Australia. The other thing that happens over there is that there's a lot of independent agents and they've got really cheesy business cards made up from who knows where with photos from high school, basically, and they (laughs) telephone numbers that are made up with all these slogans. It's really funny to look at. There's people with pictures with corded phones. And so over there, you've got these big brands with lots of agents that kind of celebrate their personality, but they do depend on the brand a lot. You've got institutional brands like Coldwell Banker or Remax Century 21, and you know the list goes on, where the agents are on either one of those standalone models where they're supporting their own costs and they're sort of taking up little from the office, but they are also given the opportunity to sort of work on a lower split and you get a lot more hand-holding. And then you've got sort of these standalone business models where there's a strong back end. They don't have the sort of team and the full org chart built out, but they can be very efficient with that. And it's quite easy to look at those agents from the outside and a consumer especially goes, look, they've got heaps of sold signs. They've got great social media presence. They seem to be up with the trends. They've got great photos and all the digital assets. So the agents can basically just be salespeople and have administration taken care of. And I think it's important that principals that are in those brands where they've got a lot of overhead and they've been doing a lot to nurture people, instead of being sour about the fact that these agents are leaving and going pursuing higher split models, to have a look at, well, what would the agents want in order not to change? And it's interesting, if you get away from the negotiation across the table where it's all about splits and money and benefits, and start looking at, like, what do the agents need here? And a lot of the times, it's systems develop them a continual flow of organically sourced business that the company participates in that model. And that's where I think the databasing side, so many trainers have been on about it for a decade or more, great agents have been on about it, but it's really been responsible for the agent to do that work, to pursue their database, their farm area. I think now more than ever, the company's got to take control of that And the ones that the companies aren't doing it themselves because they haven't got the infrastructure, the people, the tech understanding, they need to outsource part of that component to some person or an organization that has a track record in performing that. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So you have been through pretty much everything there is to go through in real estate, like from rookie agent to top performer to leader to now mentoring and bringing new, you know, leaders underneath you as well or into your business. So I'm keen to ask you a few practical questions because I think this year could be a bit of a challenge for some of the newbies particularly coming in and, you know, people that might be sort of feeling at a bit of a crossroads. Are you cool with that? Good to go. (laughs) Let's go. All right. So let's just say I'm a new agent. I'm entering the industry in 2023 because it's always been my dream to be in real estate. I've watched all the Lux listings and million dollar agent, and I'm going to be Ryan Sirhan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe not Sirhan, but what would your advice be to me? What should I focus on in the first 30 days of my job? Okay, so I think this is an important one in any business, but real estate in particular, 
it start with the end in mind, which I think is one of the seven habits of highly effective people that Michael Gerber wrote about in that book, definitely worth reading. And if you want to be at a certain level as far as what your life looks like, the staffing, what your role is in five to 10 years' time, it's like what practices would I be doing then? Because it's quite hard to develop those habits, those routines when you get busy and you've got client load. And the number one would be to get absolutely impeccable at client investigation with anyone that you meet that could be in the sphere of real estate purchasing, selling, landlording in the next handful of years. So the idea is to get to the point where you're conversational. I I like to say if you come up to someone drunk and you say, how do you speak to a buyer? They might slur a bit, but they say the same kind of words without being silly and they can actually go through the conversation in that setting because if they haven't got it to that point where they're extracting information that is going to be of value to the client for them to know and then actually deliver on what the client's asked for, whether it be buying, selling, understanding the market, whatever, and then retaining it in a CRM and using the horsepower of that CRM and the reminders and all the data that's held on that contact and that property, then there is no chance that they're going to be an elite performer in five to 10 years' time as AI and systems and tech and career track record agents are going to be playing that market with a a deeper level of understanding on top of what they've already got. Yeah, so it's getting the habits in order first. Habits in order, particularly in relation to just a buyer inquiry. And when I say just, I think the buyer inquiry is very important, but unfortunately the industry has sort of gone more towards how do we attract more listings. And in many markets, particularly the really active high-dollar markets, it's amazing what percentage of agents, not the absolute guns, but the ones just under them that are doing well financially, if that buyer is not buying in the next couple of weeks, a lot of the time they're not even ending up with a sort of track on them in a CRM. So they're sort of constantly farming for new opportunities instead of dealing with the ones that are warm and being helped out by them over a long period. Yeah. Okay. So let's just say now I'm two years in to my career in real estate. I think I'm going gangbusters. I'm starting to get a bit of momentum and, you know, this year is pretty interesting. Like, you know, we're seeing less listings and probably less buyers kicking around. What would you tell me to focus on right now if I was your sales agent? Yeah, so two years in, like in our agency, we're pretty used to bringing someone in that's sort of in that two-year bracket and they've made it through that sort of first brick wall. The first brick wall is in that sort of one to three-year period where they need to get up above their debit target or make enough money to earn a living and they've hustled their way through it. They've probably picked and chosen people that will go with them, but they're trying, trying, trying. You can see that, and you can see by the way they speak, they've got that part right. But if they don't have good systems and structure and flow in place, they're not going to hit volume, and they just either burn out or their service drops or something else falls off. So by two years, if they're really having a good go at it and they want to be elite when the time gets there, it's about understanding the best structure for them as far as the team members that are going to work with them or how they can leverage the investment, the company that they're in has already made. And some people say, I want a prospector, but they're trying to replace something that they're not willing to do, but they've got their whole thing tilted about with prospecting. But there's some realities out there. Some of the best salespeople have come from other industries. A lot of mine that, you know, 2 million and over have come from other industries. And in the last five years, they've hit that kind of threshold. And we're looking out ahead. This is where the principal needs to be involved as well. So it's talking to the principal, talking to a business coach. They should have a coach if the company doesn't have one by then. They should definitely have an understanding where their strengths and weaknesses are. And whilst they need to develop their weaknesses, you can hire for your weaknesses. But if you're a weakness in it, you're not going to be the one that can train them. So when you bring someone on, you've got to add at least another 50% on top of that to get them up to the industry weapon speed they need to be at. So when they start working with you, you are already getting the benefits of it. Otherwise, what happens is they just become friends and they don't hold them accountable to do the stuff that they're not good at. And you just end up with a complication of HR and you've got someone now that's had their name on every listing, running around with you as an associate or whatever. They then get edified. They start getting listings too. And all of a sudden they're going, they took all my clients and they've got all these complaints. (laughs) They haven't actually realized that that's not an overnight problem. You know, you hire someone, it could be 12 months or more before they're dollar productive in what you want from them. But if you actually develop their skills up to the right standard in the areas that you're not sufficient, then that's an area 
to help you go ahead. And that one plus one can really equal five in that case. Is this why people always say to hire an assistant before you feel like you're ready or before you feel like you can afford one? Or, you know, I've heard that around the industry a bit. I think that's pretty fair because like agents typically aren't super great at saving and putting money aside for important things. Some are too good at that and they pull money out and they want to focus on developments and all that sort of stuff, which is great. I think it's a really important thing. But if they haven't got a strategy for that, they can end up spending their whole time on the phone to subcontractors and popping out to sites missing out on a $50,000 listing opportunity down there, you know, as far as the feed goes. And that happens over and over again. So they've got to be careful with that. Yes, it's what I call investing ahead of the curve. You've got to invest like you've already got the success. So if you want to write a million dollars and you're currently at 500000 and you're competing agents in the market doing a million dollars and spending ten grand a month on marketing and another fifteen grand a month on support staff, they're real numbers, right? You don't really get 40, 50, 60, 70% out of a transaction. The businesses on the stock exchange get maximum 10% in a lot of cases in most sectors, pre-tax profit. And agents are thinking, no, but I want to keep my 50 or 60 or 40 or 30, whatever the number is, when really you've got to invest ahead of the curve, learn to live a leaner lifestyle and realize that if you're going through a black belt in a martial art, that's a 10, 15-year journey. And you don't get paid for that. Right. So this is a martial art that we're talking about. It's a game. It's a martial art. It's a sport, whatever it might be. But you are still learning so much more in that period of time. So whether it's marketing or people or systems or coaches, they need to be deploying their excess income that they're earning into things that are going to generate more revenue and build that 10 to 15 year goal or five to 10 year goal that we spoke about when we start with the end in mind. Yep. Okay, I'm going to throw you another question. I don't mind how you answer this, but it's just a question, yeah? So I'm going to say, pretend I'm your employee. I'm a salesperson that's sort of middle average. And you say to me, what's your marketing plan for this year, Sam? And I'll say, well, I don't know, Mark, I've got about 10 grand put away to spend. What do you think I should do with it? So this is where like, and out of the role play for one sec, because I want to answer this, but I need to provide some context. This is one of the things that the leaders need to be doing. Because if agents are all running off and they're getting on a social media funnel and they're like, oh, this is going to give me leads. And oh, I've signed up to two suburbs over here and I'm going to get 15 leads a month. And oh, no, I'm going to go videos because that's what Gabe Rubenstein's doing or someone like that. They're doing an impeccable job of it, but they're doing the core craft incredibly well. Yeah. Right. So I think it's a case of looking at where the return on investment has been already from the peers in the industry that you've spoken to, the coaches in the industry you've spoken to, the principals that have given that advice, because the ROI is different in different marketplaces, the look and feel of your brand is different, the reason that someone would go with you. So from a marketing point of view, like what did you say, 10 grand for the year? Well, I believe at the moment the bank for buck is still in social but it's what you're doing when you get the inbound inquiry on social. And if you haven't even bothered to go into the back end of Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, go on YouTube and research how it really works, how the good guys are really doing it, then you're just going to be throwing it against the wall like doing a really bad letterbox drop that gets looked at if they're lucky and put in the bin or it's in pizza vouchers. Letterbox drops can still work well if they're done right. So social lead funnels are very good. Educational content to your market is very good. And you get good bang for buck out of that. So you could maybe spend 500 out of the $800 per month on socials, but you've got to test, measure, test, measure. You've got to be looking at the responses. Who liked it? And I've stayed away from socials as far as intense socials. I still post every day, but it's only been this year that I've started ramping it back up again because it's taken me a fair while to be disassociated with being a real estate agent. And then I've been a leading principal for a long time, but now I've got a team that I want to edify and bring them up and let them grow into their roles. And that's why I, part of the reason why I don't go in the office regularly. I want the systems to be so good that the, the business is not single person dependent. And if we sort of dial that back and go, well, how can we do that with the marketing side? We need to have a look at what systems are working and be able to understand it to the point when if a dollar is being spent and I haven't seen a return on that dollar, and a dollar is not always cash back in from a client, if you're trying to develop relationships and you want to get banter going with clients or be of value to them, then it's a different brief than if you're trying to get listings, which most of them are, when there's, in some cases, 20, 30, 50,000 buyers sitting on the company database as buyers, that 30% of them have got a home to sell within a 5K radius, 
somewhere in the next one to five years. And if you are their agent before they need an agent and that's done the right way with tech and calls and support, then that's going to have a return on investment too. So it's a combination approach. And I think the principle and the area needs to be taken into account. Yeah. I had wondered when I threw that question over the tennis court that whether you had just a bit of a lob over there, whether you'd tell me if $10,000 was enough. Well, again, if it's the budget, like you said before, invest like you've already got the success. That's one of my mantras. So if they want to go from what fees did you say you were writing for that 10K, by the way? I'm writing 300000 in fees. Yeah, okay. So a minimal marketing budget for someone writing 300000 in fees that actually wants to scale up and double would be minimum 5% of what they get out of the gross split before tax. And bearing in mind, if you're employed by a company, a lot of the time you can work things out where the company gets the invoice through and it becomes a pre-tax expense for you because it's going back into your craft rather than you paying for it on the credit card. Now, that's not the same every place, but there are ways of doing that. And that's not official accountancy advice. Please don't shoot me if the legislation's different. But if it's marketing for an employee and that employee, it's not for them personally, it's for the brand with the employee and representing it, there's smart ways to do it. But 5% of what they take is minimum. So of 155%, grand a year, that's so tiny. 10% of what they take would take that up to, you know, their half, let's say it's half, 150 grand, 15 grand. But if you really want to go for it, you've got to be doing 10% of what you want to write, yeah. which just sounds like a lot. So that's where you're looking at a combination of humans, tech, coaching, marketing, multiple sources, and analytics. And that's where you need to get really efficient with what you're doing. And you can't waste any of your own time just because you've got all this profile and the occasional lead coming in. You absolutely have to make base. Because if you're not making process on your base, I'm not talking about your minimum you need to get to keep your job. I'm talking about the budget you've set that in a 10-month year, I'll work on a 10-month year because people have time off and there's downtimes. If you work on a 10-month year and you're at 30 grand a month on a 10-month year at the moment and you wanted to get to 60, you've got to be down 60 grand and you've got to look at the amount of money you're going to be putting out there into marketing. You make sure you pay for that. Necessity is the mother of invention. There's nothing like having a, an overhead or a threat of not having any money to get you working. Yeah. So I think let's just summarize that a little bit. There's no point just increasing the boost on your social media post. You actually have to look at the, well, you said it in the beginning, begin with the end in mind, like where do you want to get to and then set a marketing budget based on that. Yeah. I think it's changed a lot in that like initially principals and agents were like, look, I'll just pay someone to do that. Or, you know, we've got a teenager in the office and they're really good at it. You know, someone's kid or (laughs) Whatever. And it's like the age bracket's got nothing to do with it. What's their understanding of what's going on out there? If the people don't know who Gary V is, for example, 10 million followers on one platform, there's probably 100 million followers across all the platforms. If they haven't watched all of his YouTube videos on the how-to and then dived into the help menus that are available on all these platforms on how to get ahead and how it works and watched some other YouTubes and then spoken to marketing companies and got some proposals, There's no point spending money if you don't know where it's going and what it's doing because it's just going to end up as soon as something changes over there, they're just going to have to pour more money after it and they'll get disenchanted and say, I've tried everything, but they've really tried one thing really poorly. Yeah. Okay, one more scenario. I mean, I'm having fun with this. I don't know if you are. One more scenario. Okay, so let's say I am your top performer Mm -hmm. in the whole office and I'm writing over a million. Mm-hmm. And the next logical step for me is obviously to probably, you know, well, I've already got an assistant, let's say, but, you know, it might be for me to open my own office. I might be thinking, all right, well, I've had fun with Mark over the last few years. I think I can earn more money on my own, which is something that goes through a lot of people's heads. And I come to you and I say, Mark, I think it's time for me to fly the coop. Yeah. What would your advice be to me? Yeah. So, Luckily on this, like I've been iterating different versions of branch partnerships, satellite office, you know, sort of legal structures, financial structures, rebate structures, like back end. And I've now got a business that runs other businesses, most of them in the testing phase where our own businesses and we now do others. And I think that's something that needs to happen from the company well before the agents at this point. Because if someone goes, yeah, let's do an office, like what parts do they give? What parts do they get? How do they share that? And that principle's got some work to do real quick. So there's got to be a, I want to do that too. Let's have a timeline. And then you map it out in a Gantt chart 
as far as who's going to be doing what in that period of time, the principal has to get to work real quick and have a look at the models that are available to scale their back end so that the company's overhead goes down. So the agent split, not just split, like the revenue for that company can go up. Look at all the legal structures, talk to the best lawyers, the best accountants that are doing this stuff regularly, and then understand what sort of tech is needed to sort of help the agent perform, measure themselves because they haven't run a business before, figure out their org chart. But, you know, assuming that's been done, and in our case, someone wants to do it at a million dollars, it's absolutely, let's have a look at it. And, you know, if they're already working in a certain geography, another actual physical presence may or may not suit. If they've got a client type, like let's just say that they're into entrepreneurial people or they deal with a lot of Australians that have made a lot of money, but they're sort of tradies and they're pretty rough and tumble or they might be in the really sort of upmarket areas, whatever that might be, it's how do we gear everything to look and feel like them without fighting against the brand, so using those assets. And one of the things that's going to be quite important in that, and it probably comes before they get to a million, is if you're at a million, that could be 50 transactions at $20,000 or it could be 20 transactions at $50,000. And it's usually a blend, but they need to have someone else in their team that's going to be doing the satellite sort of orbiting properties that come off buyer conversion profile. Because once they've got their name on the door, they will work harder. It happens yeah. all the time and it annoys principals when someone leaves. It doesn't annoy me because it's human nature. They leave the comfort of the big office that's helped them get to where they were. And I think that's totally fine. If it doesn't suit anymore, the principal's got to be ready for that. And regular check-ins will help them understand that, but you still get surprised from time to time. And if they want to go out and do their own thing, once their name's on the door, once they've got a recurring cost coming out of their bank account that everyone agrees is a reasonable cost for what's been delivered, and you know they've got staff, they've got overheads and got stress, man, they might work three times as hard just to prove that they could do it. And it's amazing. I'm doing 75 hard right now. I didn't think I had time for a second workout every day. I already work out every day. And then on top of that, to read hard copy books, I mostly listen to audio books. I listen to them on 2X and I get through a lot because I'm an auditory learner. But it's amazing what you can get in the day and how much more strategic and into planning you get when you've got load on you. So that agent can definitely do that. But those back-end systems are very important. The process is very important. Hiring an org chart that's going to make up for the parts that they're not great at and figuring out who you want to be in the market because then you'll be doing those things and then you'll have any definition of success that applies to you. And you don't just shoot for $1 million in your own office to get a bigger split. You're shooting for $2.5, 3000000 $5 million, and that's roadmapped, reverse engineered back as to when you need the next recruits, what fees you're writing, what properties you're doing, and what ones someone else is doing. That will be a summary. Well, yeah, actually, it's a pretty comprehensive summary. And, and I guess, you know, if I could sort of add my $0.10 cents worth onto that, there's no point earning extra money being on your own if it's going to cause you that much stress because you've got to <laughs> kind of reinvent all of the stuff yeah yeah and entrepreneurship is hard you and I both know that (laughs) yeah well it's an exercise in well evolution by definition is rooted in survival right so like surviving is part of evolution and that means that you have to be comfortable that the obstacle is the way you know Google had a thing for a fair while there as their term move fast break shit now there's things you can't break you don't want to break your reputation break your clients trust you know, and I'm just throwing those out there freestyle, but there are definitely, there's a trial and error part of it. And that's why I think if people are going to open an office, they've got all the options in the world, they can go independent and have the freedom and all the stuff that goes with it, but at least look inside first and see if it's possible to leverage some of the stuff that's going on there. And if it's not there, see if you can have a chat with the principal about these are the things that if they were still there, I would work on because the principal looks at, okay, well, if that person moves on altogether, I've now sort of, you know, that bridge is kind of burnt in a lot of cases. We don't burn them so hard if people leave these days because we realize it's a journey. If they look at what they can do inside and look collaboratively, and it's about collaboration, it's not about proving you can do it on your own. It's about collaborating with the people and the resources around you and in this wonderful industry about what can be done in my current environment. And if you've tried everything, and I call it killing it on the whiteboard, if you whiteboard it, and you can't kill it on the whiteboard, then you do it. But if you're open to criticism properly, like they do a red team check in the Air Force, and you're actually looking for things that could go wrong with the flight plan, then you keep looking at the flight plan before you take off. You're not going to work it out in the air doing 800,000 Ks an hour. And unfortunately, (laughs) some people force themselves too, and it's very rough and ready. And 
I think that there's a smoother path for all involved. I was going to say, unless you Matt Hall, then maybe you could figure it out, you know, in the Red air. Bull racing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Matt Hall racing, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, a couple more questions because I feel like you and I have just been talking for hours and we almost have been. So just one more question on this. Well, it's not really a role play question, but I'm interested to know because you and I have had a couple of chats in the past. What's one question agents should ask their principal but don't? It can sometimes come across as a bit of a trap. So let's just assume they've got a good relationship. Yeah. They're not looking to go right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like, let's just say you've got the agent that's been in it less than five years, the principal that's been in it, say, 15 to 20, and if the principal's got a track record, they've done all the things, right? They've worked in property management, they've worked in sales, they've done a bit of the office management, caught a few balls that have been kicked to them that they didn't want to run with. So there's respect there, right? It's not different than that. And the agent's rising, they've got a bit of swagger about them now, but they find a moment of humility and they go and they talk to their principal in a closer environment. And I'll be having a look at it and say, you've seen a lot of agents over your years and I know you network with other principals out there, which is the best practice. And someone that's at my stage, I'm not after what the next hack is, what the next trick is, because I'm seeing that on social media, YouTube, every conference I go to, every product that comes out, every agent I talk to, they've all got the latest thing. What are the gaps that you're seeing in the way that I'm showing up in the world that if I was to improve those, my journey in real estate would be better, my client experience would be better, my colleagues around me would see a better me, feel a better me. I would enjoy myself more. My family would get more out of me and it would probably lead to substantially bigger financial upside. Where are those gaps? Shoot them at me. Let's rank them out there. And then will you help me find ways to address those gaps in order of priority? Oh, I love it. I think <laughs> I've got goosebumps because it's so interesting that even in your own performance, and I mean, it doesn't matter what job you're in, even me and mine, I love it when people tell me where the gaps are because they're my blind spots usually. It's one of the most caring things that you can do. It's one of the best mentoring things you can do. Now, I'll put this in context because this is where it all comes together because, oh, yeah, that's a nice technique. Good on you. Put yourself in the context that you're about to go into a charity corporate boxing match. Now, you've had a couple of fisty cups on the football field or let's hope not the netball court, but maybe in the women's rugby or whatever, regardless of your gender, you've had some rough and tumble over the years, but you haven't actually been a boxer, right? And you've both got six or eight weeks to prepare for this fight. So what have you got going there? Like there's a personal challenge to overcome. There's all the fitness that you've got to learn. You've got to learn the skills. But the biggest fear that most people have when they're going in those is being humiliated for having their head punched in because the pain will go away. The suffering takes longer because it's a mental thing. And yeah. you've got all your competitors in the room, all the people that want to see you get your head belted in, all the people that said you were a smart ass and all those fears that you've got about yourself because people still have this. Ego is a real thing. It doesn't mean that you've got a big ego. Ego types have been well described by all the guys, Carl Jung and Ryan Holiday and all those. So if you're going for that match, do you want to know the gaps? Hell yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you're yeah. risking humiliation, getting your head punched in, getting possibly some irreparable damage to your face and just that memory. You want to know you've done everything. It's not just fitness. It's not just training twice a day. Where's my guard down? What am I doing? Like, Where am I leaving myself open? How am I showing up? What am I wasting in my training time with my diet plan, with the amount of sleep I'm getting, with the people I'm hanging around, with my weekend activities? You're going to want to know the lot and then you're going to go through assessing it and a boxing coach is not going to say, oh, well, you're really good and you're my best fighter and I'd like to keep you. Yeah. They're going to be able to tell you straight because they know if they don't tell you straight, you're going to get your head punched in. Yeah. And they've seen that happen over and over again. And the funny thing is a lot of the people that aren't asking that question are of the view because they've risen quickly or they've got a substantial financial GCI or they've had tailwinds of the market or they might be a weapon at closing listings and doing deals. They're not actually wanting to know what their gaps are because there's a lot of the world these days, and I don't say that like an old person, oh, these days, there's a lot of stuff these days about just celebrating all the things you're good at. And real estate is very good at putting people on a podium on a certain number of metrics. But if that podium is only measured by that external measurable of how many sales, how much GCI, what car, whatever, if you look at it from the point of view, if your objective is to be 
a holistic professional in your career that's setting a standard, setting a tone, transforming the industry, employing other people, not just supporting your family, but like being your best self, then there's going to be different categories that are important. And if you and your principal have had that chat consistently, or you and your HR manager, if you're in a tier two or tier one organization that's got the full org chart built out, and your coach, if you've got one, there's various coaches, that's going to be mapped out. So it's like based on what I want to be, who I want to be, and I know I can be, I actually am that person, but there's things I'm not doing that are consistent with that. Where are the gaps? And I think if you can get to the core of that, then you've got a game plan that you can be working on a tiny bit per day or a big bit initially, and that is transformative. Yeah, amazing. Well, look, Mark, I would like to say thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing some of your wisdom. I think there is something in this episode for, you know, pretty much everyone, whether you're a leader or a rookie or you've been in the industry for a couple of years, we've covered so much ground. If there was one thing or one final piece of advice that you'd like to leave everyone with, what would it be? I would say more than ever that collaboration is key right now. That literally just came to me freestyle because you haven't given me a list of questions or if you have, I haven't read the email. (laughs) But collaboration is key right now. Now, be careful who you're choosing to collaborate with. So remember, who's the person you want to be? What would the activities they be doing to be consistent with that higher version of yourself? And then you'll have any definition of success. You'll attract those people to you. So you don't just watch them on social media. You speak to them. You reach out. You don't leave it till a conference. Find a way, get recommended, get a coach that knows what they're doing, that has a track record for developing people like you and collaborate with other people that are on similar journeys that, you know, your vibe attracts your tribe because that's going to help you move ahead. Now, that doesn't mean you only hang out with people that are like you. It's people that you admire traits about them that resonate with you. They could be completely divergent in the markets and the way they do business, but they resonate. And I think collaboration at the moment This is the time for it with all the changes going on. Yeah, amazing. Mark Kentwell, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being back in dialogue with you and I really do support the publication you've got in all its mediums and I'm really seeing some great stuff happening on your TikTok now and getting across to the other platforms too. You know, that's a pivot right there from that hard copy magazine that was going on at the start. So. Congratulations to you. Yeah, and now you'll be on our TikTok too. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Better like it and share it and save it. (laughs) Thank you. All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate Podcast. With thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agent's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com. 